All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are on episode 107 and we are continuing to read High Risers by Ben Austin. J.R. Fleming. The summer of the first Bulls championship in 1991 was miserable with murder. 121 homicides in August alone, the most for any month in Chicago's history, with the official count for the year surpassing 920. More days than not were peaceful at Cabrini, but sniper fire was an especially effective weapon of terror. Employees of Commonwealth Edison refused to do maintenance at a nearby substation, fearing that from inside a cherry picker 50 feet high, they'd appear as targets. Some of the workers welter sil- some of the workers weather sealing the concrete exteriors of the Cabrini high rises wore bulletproof vests. When J.R. Fleming stepped outside, he would look up to scan the top floors of the towers around him as if checking for bad weather. If he saw white sheets covering the windows, he figured it was probably safe to hustle across the blacktop. But if he didn't see the sheet, then it was possible someone behind the window was scanning the grounds with the rifle in hand. The thing was, J.R. never knew whether or not he was in the crosshairs whether the bolt of lightning would suddenly strike. The high-rises forming the south and north boundaries of the killing field fired on the towers lining the east and west borders, and vice versa. In an internal memo, a housing manager at Cabrini told the CHA that snipers in 1,157-1,159 North Cleveland had shot at least 10 people from 500 to 502 West Oak. Every building has some Vietnam veterans, but even untrained guys would go up there to feel the power of aiming the big gun, deciding whether the tiny objects moving below would live or die. Quote, I live in a neighborhood I am sure you've heard of, Cabrini Green Housing Development, end quote, a longtime tenant named Mrs. Henry Johns wrote in a letter to President George H.W. Bush. Quote, The innocent residents of this community cannot walk the streets without fearing for their lives, end quote, she explained. Quote, I believe in your foreign policy. The United States must take a major role in world affairs. But to be effective in that role, you must also set an example here at home. My solution would be to do what was done in the Persian Gulf. Send in the troops and get rid of the opposition and ammunition. End quote. One night when J.R. and his friends were leaving a liquor store on Larrabee, they heard the percussive blows before they saw the little eruptions on the ground around them. It took a moment for J.R. to realize that someone was shooting at them. They dropped their bottles, fell flat on their chests, and crawled military style on elbows and knees back into the store. Once inside, they patted themselves to check if they'd been hit. They were fine, but now they were trapped. They gave their handguns to the clerk, who stashed them away, and did the only thing possible, called the police. The two cops who showed up cursed J.R. and the guys with him, resentful that they were risking their lives to deal with this nonsense. 30 minutes later, four paddy wagons parked front to back to form a wall across Larrabee, and J.R. and his friends crossed the street using the cars as cover. J.R.'s godmother was one of the women who ran his high-rise. Luella Edwards had left Cabrini Green for a time, moving her family to the Harold Ike's home, a public housing development on the south side, but she decided her children were in graver danger there. At least at Cabrini, she knew everyone. As far as the young men hanging out in front of her high rise, she demanded of them a kind of tax. When J.R. entered the lobby of his building, Edwards would charge out of the tenant council office and say she checked the sign up sheet and he hadn't put in his hours of service. Like all the other guys, he was expected to sweep and mop the ramps, monitor the building's first floor computer club 
and volunteer for Edwards' Take Our Daughters to Work Club. They also chaperoned trips for the children from the building to baseball games or Six Flags Great America, and they were sent across the field to help with Holy Family's Boys in the Hood youth groups. There was a weight bench in the one... There was a weight bench in the 1017 lobby and Jr. might be waiting to get in his reps when he was ushered into a tenant council meeting, him slouching in the back of the community room, listening abstractly to the women talk about the city's plans to kick them all off the land at Cabrini. Quote, I had money then. I'm my own boss. End quote. Jr. would say, quote, the end of Cabrini wasn't impacting me. End quote. It was Luella Edwards who introduced Jr. to Brother Jim. Another lay member of the Catholic Church who joined the Brother Bill in walking the city's public housing developments. Twenty years younger than Bill Thomas, Jim Fogarty also wore a habit of stitched denim. Tall and athletic, he'd take it off when he joined pickup basketball games, realizing that J.R. and other guys wouldn't really try if he had on the robes. He was a student at Chicago Seminary when Bill showed up one day, describing how he stopped gunfire and asking if anyone cared to join him. Later in life, Fogarty would parse more deliberately the line between the real and the symbolic, between meaning and myth. But back then, it looked to him as though Brother Bill had emerged from the pages of Lives of the Saints. Fogarty believed that special people in special places could have divine experiences, and he was eager to see how the Lord worked through this odd man. For the media covering the urban crisis of the 1990s, Brother Bill was irresistible as well. A white man who looked like he stepped out of the Middle Ages claiming that God had sent him to the most infamous public housing project in the country. Time magazine did a feature on him. And in August 1992, a camera crew from the national news show Eye on America followed Brother Bill around Cabrini Green. Here was, quote, the most dangerous patch of blacktop in America, end quote, the host intoned. And Brother Bill was the, quote, street gang missionary, end quote who had survived some 30 near hits and saved hundreds of lives. The reporters from the program interviewed Luella Edwards, who said her 15-year-old daughter, Laquanda, had begged her to move them away from Cabrini Green. Edwards said she worried every time her children went out to play, but all she could do was pray. With Brother Bill fitted with the microphone, cameras trailed him as he lurked in the shadows, waiting for the gunfire that would set him in motion. A shooting did occur on the land that night, and Thomas ran to it. Sniper fire had struck a girl in the back of the head as she was walking on Larrabee near Holy Family. Bending over the victim with the cameras rolling, Brother Bill looked into the girl's face. It was Laquanda Edwards, interviewed by the news crew only hours before. She had been on her way to the corner store to buy milk. Bill wept over the body. Behind him, J.R. skulked back and forth, set on revenge a 357 Magnum stuffed in his sweatpants as Brother Jim talked him down. Brother Jim helped JR secure a peddling license and he found work for many others, although most of the jobs didn't stick. He even offered JR a way out of Cabrini Green, a group that included Judge Reinhold, the actor from Beverly Hills Cop and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, bought the film rights to Brother Bill's life. The production faltered, and Brother Jim arranged for Jr. to provide the Hollywood guys with some verite footage of life on the ground at Cabrini. Jr. already owned the video equipment, and he discovered that he loved the process of filming and editing, creating a story out of a thousand stray moments. He'd capture his friends as they gathered in front of their high-rise or cross-layer beyond their way to the mall or hung out inside Sammy's Red Hots 
across from Atrium Village beside the L tracks. He sometimes stage managed, ordering everyone back inside the hot dog stand so he could shoot their exes all over again, instructing them to walk more naturally. He started filming young rappers from Cabrini, and suddenly every guy who wanted to show off his rhyming skills was seeking him out for an audition. The team from Hollywood liked what it saw. Brother Jim suggested J.R. do like preach at the end of Cooley High and quit Cabrini Green for the West Coast movie industry. J.R. had savings from his peddling, and he could ask Reinhold for a starter job in film. It was appealing, the idea of the total reinvention. But J.R. couldn't leave. He told Jim that he already knew all about the Bloods and Crips from what he'd heard in West Coast rap and seen in movies like Colors, Boys in the Hood, and South Central. The L.A. gangs had become as infamous, as much of an urban boogeyman, as Cabrini Green. If J.R. lived out West, he half joked, he wouldn't be safe wearing any color other than orange. He was less afraid of the violence, though, than of the unknown of a new place. He'd rather stick it out with what was familiar, where his friends and family lived. For better and for worse, he'd announce, quote, I am Cabrini Green, end quote. And that brings us to the end of that chapter, and to the end of chapter 10 and to the beginning of chapter 11. I think what stands out to me in, in that passage is, is a lot, it's, it's very simple to just say, how come you don't move or how come you don't go to a different city or how come you don't live in a different area? And one of the things that we have seen illustrated throughout the close to 200 pages that we've read in this book is that for people that are in these situations, it's, it's not that simple. It's, it's not that simple to leave the only life that you've known. It's not that simple to leave all the people that you know. It's not that simple to leave the area that you know. Uh, I, I don't know what the statistic is, but there's a, a statistic that I believe is a very high statistic about how many people uh, how many people die in the same area code that they were born in or the same zip code that they were born in or something like that. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of it, it is not the overwhelming majority of people who uh, move and live into a different city or city or a different area. A lot of people uh are born in a place, live in that place, and they die in that place. And for when you're when that when the place that you're born in and live in is a place that's like Cabrini Green, that's like these high rises, is a place that's uh, low income or uh, that's public housing. It doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the nature of the facts that you know most people don't move out of these areas. Most people don't move out of these cities or move out of these situations. And so I think that with that being understood, my point would be that it's incumbent upon uh, cities, it's incumbent upon counties, it's incumbent upon states, it's incumbent upon the country to make these environments safer, to make these uh, living conditions uh, uh, better, to make it so that people aren't being shot and at risk of being shot and aren't and when they become products of their environment, that it's a positive thing as opposed to being a negative thing. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next chapter. Chapter 11, Dantrell Davis Way. She was 12 and he was 15 and to Annette seemed somehow better than the other guys stationed in the lobby. Sharper dressed, funnier, finer. That's how she knew it was love. In 1982, Kelvin Davis lived on the west side with his mother, but he showed up each day at Cabrini Green. K-Mac, they called him. There were lots of boys and also men who tried to talk to Annette Freeman. She was a tomboy, 
short and cute, with close cropped hair. It was Kelvin, though, who understood her suffering. Annette's father died the previous year, shot dead on the south side. She'd been running away from her mother's apartment in 500 West Oak ever since. Janice Freeman would drink, beat Annette, and then beg forgiveness after sobering up, only to wake Annette up later that night with more blows. So Annette left home. Quote, it's time to man up, end quote, she told herself. She refused to sell her body, choosing to sell weed instead. She got a job selling newspapers, too, hawking them on Chicago Avenue, State, and Michigan. The only girl out there with all the boys. Some nights, Annette slept at her grandmother's house, more than 100 blocks south, but each morning she hopped on the L to come back to her building. Kelvin would be there, and he called her, quote, the lost child, end quote, and make her laugh through her pain. Annette was 14 in 1984 when she learned she was pregnant. It seemed to her like the end of the world. Among her friends from the building, she was the first to get pregnant. She was humiliated, her belly sticking out, announcing that she was having sex. So much for manning up. She had to quit the job selling newspapers. Quote, here I was, a child and homeless, and about to have a child of my own, end quote, she recalled. She wondered what kind of mother she could possibly be. But Kelvin kept telling her it was going to be all right. Quote, we're going to be okay, Ann, end quote, he repeated. They named the baby after two of Kelvin's uncles, Dantrell Tremaine Davis. Annette called him Danny. Annette had been abandoned as a child, left for several years with a woman on the south side she didn't know, and because she was still a ward of the state, the Department of Children and Family Services wanted her to sign over paternal rights. A baby was a burden, no doubt, but she wouldn't give Danny up. No way. She wouldn't even leave him alone with other people, not after what had happened to her. The two of them went everywhere together. She took him with her to Cabrini, and they would stroll downtown or to the Lincoln Park Zoo or to the beaches on Oak Street and North Avenue. They'd walk to the Milk Duds factory to get candies and wander Old Town, looking in the bike shop in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Kelvin had other children with other girls, but he joined them sometimes, the three of them like a family. Annette and Danny slept at her grandmother's or at Kelvin's mother's place or in the elevator of 500 West Oak. Occasionally, she rode the train with Danny, going from one end of the line to the other until morning. When Annette turned 18 and Danny was three, she filled out an application for her own apartment at Cabrini Green. She would never forget the day she got it, February 9th, 1989. The unit was on the sixth floor of 502 West Oak, the twin connected to her mother's building, and moving in was her freedom. It was liberation not only from the uncertainty of homelessness, the cold and strange men, but also from all the naysayers who told her she wouldn't accomplish anything, that she'd probably be dead by age 18, and that she couldn't take care of a child. Her uncle Henry, a bus driver, helped her with furniture. An official from Family Services checking in on her saw that the apartment was clean, that, we sh that she was providing for her son, and Annette was granted guardianship over both Dan Trail and, for the first time, her own self. Annette made sure Danny played baseball at Cabrini and boxed in the Seward Park Fieldhouse. She never let him miss a day of school. No way would Danny grow up to be in a gang and sell drugs. She sold drugs, but that was to keep Danny in shoes and clothes she could afford. Excuse me, sorry about that. She sold drugs, but that was to keep Danny in the shoes and clothes she couldn't afford on a public aid check alone. 
She took one of the rotating shifts outside her building. With so many others needing the work, she barely got any hours. When Dantrell acted up and was sent to a kindergarten for children with behavioral problems, Annette's friends told her she was lucky. She could claim an SSI, Supplemental Security Income, for someone with a disability. Quote, I'm not going to claim shit extra, end quote, she said, quote, because my son is intelligent, end quote. He was hard-headed, that's all. He didn't listen to anyone but his mother and father. She rode the bus with him to the school each day, making sure he was taken seriously as a student. She lobbied to get him reassigned to a school at Cabrini for first grade. In the spring of that kindergarten year, in 1992, with Dan Trail asleep on their couch, Annette left him for a shift outside the building. At 4 o'clock a.m., a woman who lived next door heard Dan Trail screams before she smelled the smoke. A man from the building kicked in the door. A cigarette by the couch must have started the fire. An ambulance rushed Dan Trail to the emergency room while firefighters put out the blaze and the police located Annette. The burns covered half of Dan Trail's body, mostly on his left side, over his stomach and arms and face. His cheeks were polka dotted in pink where the skin seared, his fingertips hardened like wood. He spent the next few weeks in the hospital, Annette and Kelvin by his side. After the skin grafts, you could see the burns, but they were much less visible. They got another apartment in 502 West Oak. Annette was ordered to take parenting classes. She was happy to do it. She was told she couldn't leave him alone again. She understood. After weeks in the hospital, Dan Trail was ready to start first grade at Jenner. That was perfect. The elementary school was right outside their high rise, not 100 feet from their front door. Although he still couldn't read or print out letters, his new teacher said it would be only a matter of time, and Danny believed him. At the start of the school day, he sat transfixed as the teacher read stories to the class. He won second place in a boxing tournament, and his coach thought his wide smile electric. Annette felt they were doing good. They both overcome so much. Dan Trail told her all the time that he loved her. He'd repeat it like a song. I love, love, love you. He was only seven, but he had an old soul. Quote, he didn't give up on me, even when I gave up on myself. End quote, Annette would say. Quote, not my little soldier, not my best friend. End quote. Then on September 13th, a week into the school year, Kelvin Davis died. He was 27, his body discovered in bed at his mother's west side home. Annette would blame asthma. Official reports stated that he choked in his sleep, the likely result of a drug overdose, either heroin or methadone. His rap sheet was long on petty crimes, possession, assault, shoplifting. He had nine children total, but Annette said he'd been a good father to Danny and he was the only man she'd ever loved. They'd been together 10 years, almost half her life, and the death made her want to drink herself senseless or die or hurt other people. She held it together for Danny. Quote, I miss him too, end quote, she tell her son. Quote, but it's only us now, end quote. In October, a couple of weeks after the funeral, Kelvin's sister dropped by to check on them. The night was cold, and as they walked Dan Trail's aunt back to the bus stop, Annette looked down at her son, trudging silently between them, his face twisted in worry. Quote, Man, my, I don't want to get shot, end quote, he said. It was a peculiar thing for him to say. He'd never fretted over violence before. 
Their building was vice lords, and the towers flanking them were controlled by gangster disciples. When Annette was in high school, she and her friends started their walk to Lincoln Park each morning by counting down before breaking into a sprint, with guys from the surrounding high-rises dropping things on them or streaming outside with golf clubs. Oh, excuse me. Or streaming outside with golf clubs and giving chase. Annette trained Dan Trail from an early age to stay clear of the blacktop, to walk away when fights started. At the sound of a gun blast, he knew to fall on the ground. He knew the drill. She told him not to worry. Quote, don't I always, don't I always got you, Danny? End quote, she said, pulling him into her waist. Quote, I'll take care of you. The next morning, October 13th, 1992, was a Tuesday, and Dan Trail loafed in his room, watching cartoons while Annette dressed. That wasn't like him. He usually set the pace, beating her to the door. Quote, you're not going to school today? End quote, Annette teased. He said he wanted to stay home and spend the day with her. But skipping school wasn't part of their plan. When he still didn't budge, she agreed reluctantly to walk him downstairs. They came out of the building, and Annette waited for him to cross the street to Jenner. Several teachers were outside greeting students. Parents in shiny yellow vests worked as crossing guards. Two police officers idled in a squad car at the corner. Annette pointed to Danny's friends. Quote, there goes Dudu, end quote, she told him, but he didn't move. Quote, didn't I tell you to go over by the school? End quote, she urged him on with a flick of her hands, irritated in the way parents get when their children are slow to react. Quote, do something, end quote, she snapped. Quote, I am doing something, ma, end quote. Then a 9 o'clock a.m. school bell sounded. A moment later, Annette heard the first of the shots. She dropped to the ground and yelled for Dantrell to do the same. When she looked over, she saw him already on his stomach and a bit of pride and a bit of pride blossomed in her. Quote, that's because of his learnings, end quote, she told herself. She had prepared him. She was keeping him safe. The shooting stopped and Annette crawled over to her son. Quote, all right, let's get up. Let's go in the building, end quote, she said. But he couldn't get up. Bystander says she screamed, quote, please, baby, don't die, end quote, and please come and get my baby. Please hurry. She didn't remember any of that. A half hour later at Children's Memorial Hospital, Dantrell Davis was pronounced dead. A bullet had entered the left side of his head. And then that's the end of the theme in that passage. And. <clears throat> I think that that sort of, uh, I don't know, I think that sort of speaks for itself. I don't really, one of the commonalities of all the the things that we've read, every book that we've opened up has been uh, the death that exists in, that exists in these in these situations for uh, people of color, uh, for working class people and for poor people. Uh, we've seen the death be in the form of murder in the form of shootings. We've seen the death be in the form of uh, disease. Uh, we've seen the death be in the form of, of drug overdose. And I just think the main thing that sticks out is that 
if we lived in a society that cared about the people who were going through these things and dealing with these things that we wouldn't be reading about uh, Danny being killed in the in 1992 in the 90s when the conditions that led to Danny's death were something that existed in uh in in, in all honesty in the the 60s the 70s the 80s uh but because the people who but because Danny and the people the kids and the people like Danny were uh were black or were brown or because their parents lived in public housing or because their parents sold drugs or because their parents have been arrested uh the country the society uh didn't have empathy and turned a blind eye to these things and that's why in 2022 uh there are still people losing their lives the way that Danny lost his life uh I think we'll end this episode here and then we'll pick up the next episode uh, where this one ended at. All right. I would encourage people to please listen to this. Uh, please share this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember that we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. Talk to you tomorrow.